tired. So tired. Overtired. You're listening to Overtired. That's right. We're back. I'm Christina Warren, joined as always by my friends Brett Terpstra and Jeff Severns Gunzel. Boys, how are you? It's been a while. It's good to be back. It's, yeah, good. You're going to hear birds maybe because I refuse to shut my windows for <laughs> audio quality because it's Minnesota and it's warm. And so let's do this. You have Absolutely. a very directional mic. It's working fine. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I also have a cat that has started walking across my keyboard. I call him the intern now because he sent an email and deleted another. So, Do you guys want a, a Yeti update? Yes. How is Yeti doing? Yeah, the old cat. How's the old cat? So like yesterday, I took him. He's getting these shots. I can't remember what they're called, but they are supposed to help with like mobility and aging cats. And, and they work for him. Um, but yesterday when I was in, I mentioned some specific problems he was having and they were like, oh, this combination of him aging, dropping weight, and then these like basically stool issues um, could be a really bad sign. So we would like you to make an appointment to uh, do, some, do, do a consultation, do a full physical and I paid like $400 for labs. And then we had to go in today. And I was literally expecting the worst because like two cats in a row, we took Clovis in because his breast smelled bad. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's oral cancer. He has two weeks to live. Oh, my God. And, you know, like this was a shock. And then we took Finnegan in because his meow had changed. And we were concerned about like maybe something in his lungs or something. And he's nine months old and they're like, he's got two weeks to live. So I have this like fear of these appointments. But we went in today and they're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, even Yeti's uh, kidney illness, had, the scores have come down. Everything's looking great. You guys are doing a great job. Uh, we're going to we're going to treat a bladder infection and we're going to put him on some more meds for his uh his runny stool. But yeah, they're like, you're doing a great job. This this cat's doing great for a 19-year-old cat. And I was like, oh, so relieved. It was amazing. It was because I was crying last night. I was preparing myself for the end of life, right? Yeah. And so like I kept like breaking down and I was like crying in front of L, just like trying to like deal with my like it's time. We all know it's time, but yeah. it's mortality and it gets me. And then today was such a relief. I have a little more time with my boy. Yeah. That's fantastic. Brett. That's really good. That's really good. I know. Yeah. And I know what you mean like having like that fear of like going to the doctor and hearing and stuff because you've that that's the only experience you've had and like it sets you up. It's you know every every pet I've ever had has died of cancer. Wow. Like there's always this late stage cancer discovery and like with with Emma, like we we found out she had cancer and had to put her down the same day. Like it all happened so uh, fast in a period of three. Well, no hours. wonder you're pre crying, <laughs> right? Going to the vet, you know. I've had some trauma. Yeah, yeah. Well, wow. I'm so happy. Thank That's you. Great. Thank you. That's wonderful. That might that might even count as my mental health corner update. There you go. You're, you're stepping out of the corner. <laughs> That's me in the corner. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, why'd you do that? It's going to be stuck in my head. <laughs> I know, right? Have you ever seen the cat version of Losing My Religion no, no, where I'm it's not. just photos of cats and it's like they illustrate like every line. Like there's literally a cat sitting in a corner and then there's <gasps> a cat, cat under a light shade. No, I haven't. Going, that's me in the spotlight. And then a cat in front of like a crucifix. <laughs> It's, that's really funny it's amusing so there's a there's a great story from a, a wonderful photographer based in minneapolis his name is alex soth and he's this like kind of international photographer he makes these he uses like large format um cameras and he makes these just stunning portraits and at a certain point he started being asked to do things for like the new york times magazine or other things like that like kind of big market stuff and and he was he was told that michael stipe wanted to um wanted him to take his photo and and he was at a point where he was just like not feeling uh this whole idea of like applying his art to celebrities and so the sure. photo he suggested and ultimately the job was killed because of this was that they they meet in new york and that michael stipe stand two blocks away 
and they take this gorgeous because the the large format camera is like every detail of what's in it is beautiful mm-hmm. so it would be a really compelling photo but michael stipe would be two blocks away <laughs> or one block probably and uh so that i got killed but anyway the, the rem story always reminds me of that i think it's just a fun story it's not even snotty it's just like he was like legitimately like, that's just where he was at i love that idea i feel like yeah if i were gonna have i would love that picture of me to be like part of something larger yeah and not have it be all about me i i would i and and i would think michael sype like from what i know of him you would think he'd be into it yeah Yeah. but like the the cool thing i'll link this in the show notes is that he has a photo i think he was using as reference which is this photo of a monk in the woods and the monk is just way off (laughs) um it's just it's just the most amazing portrait anyway i'll pick up on the theme which is just that I, i i have this cat sitting next to me his name is murphy he's totally my best friend and my favorite person and when he was a kitten he ate my zoloft and almost died oh shit um and oh, I fuck. often think back to that and I get this like enormous wave of grief, uh, even though he's fine. He has three years past that. It, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I it just I mean, it's so <laughs> here's a, like a, another cat related mental health check in. I've started I started having a bed on my desk, like right to my right, which looks out a window. And my two cats, which are they were their siblings, they were found um, in a barn alone when they were little kittens, and so they're like constantly together, constantly snuggling. So they actually like this bed is really only big enough for Murphy, who's the big boy, and then my other cat looks like the runt of a raccoon litter, and and they sit in here and they make a little like little fur pile and they snuggle while I'm working like almost all day. Oh, that's nice. And so if I'm having meetings that are stressful, I have one hand on this like giant fur pile, <laughs> you know, and you can kind of feel the purring and feel the the breathing. And so our cat, nobody uh, grew for a year and then just stopped growing. So now she's over two years old and still it's the size of like maybe even less than a one year old cat. She just she's a tiny she's a tiny cat. She's a runt. She's a runt of a, would you say, a raccoon litter? Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what my other cat looks like and acts like. Does that name nobody, did it come from the movie Dead Man or did it come from? Came from the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. Awesome. Yeah. So my, I guess, uh, in my updates, so this is a couple weeks old now, but my uh, my sister's dog, Boo Bear, who we love, he's definitely my sister's first son. He uh, he's a poodle. Um, he's whatever the not the tiniest one is, which I guess is toy. He's mini poodle uh, or miniature poodle, whatever. But but he um, and uh, and his twin brother uh, Pooh Bear are are not. Um, and and Pooh Bear belongs to my mother in law. But um, Boo Bear has cataracts or had cataracts. Um, and and it got to the point that like it was really really bad, and he was basically completely blind. And he had surgery last week, and he went through it pretty well. They wanted to add the lenses. But the vet basically said that she didn't want to keep him under that long because he doesn't do super well with being under anesthesia. So he didn't have lenses put in, but the cataracts were at least removed. So hopefully he will at least get some of his vision back. Like I think he's going to be able to see things from across the way, but he'll still have a hard time with things up close. But I'm hopeful that that will at least improve some of his quality of life because it was really, really sad to see him not like he he knows he's been staying with my parents um, because my sister has gone a lot during the day and he knows the layout to most of their house, but like not all of it. And like he got stuck in like the bathroom in the bedroom that I stay in. It's, it's hard seeing um, seeing animals deteriorate. Sure is. All right. Well, we have some topics. Well, do you want to talk about the um, Apple savings oh, account? Because yeah. I know you yeah. really wanted to hit on that. I just feel like everyone needs to know about this. So if you have an Apple card, you can now uh, sign up for an Apple savings account, also through Goldman Sachs. And it comes with, and I assume this is true for everybody, it comes with like a 4.15 interest rate. And there's no minimum balance. There's no minimum deposit. There's no yearly fee. It is a far better savings account than I can get through my local credit union. I moved most of my savings at this point into this Apple savings account. And instead instead of your cash back from your Apple card going to an Apple cash account, it can now go into an Apple savings account, which is earning 
four plus percent interest. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this because I've been looking at that because when they when they uh, you know introduced it, I I signed up almost immediately because I had um, I think about a thousand dollars in Apple Cash for various things. My typical thing is that I get like my my Apple Cash back. And then I usually let it stay in there just kind of in perpetuity. And then like, you know, once it reaches a high enough balance, I pay for something with it or I, I transfer it to my I sure. transfer it to my yeah. bank account is usually what I do. And in this case, I just hadn't and, and I was wrong. It wasn't um uh it wasn't a thousand dollars, I think it was five hundred because I transferred two thousand dollars to my bank sure. account. So I I'd had like I had like twenty five hundred <laughs> oh, in there and then I was like, I was I was like, I'm gonna put two two thousand like back in my in my um my checking account, which was probably dumb because what I was going to ask you is, cause I have been considering, like, I think that they let you put in like 20 grand, like on a, on a, a seven day period, but like how hard is it, I guess, to get money in and out? Because I wouldn't be opposed to putting like with that 4% thing, like you said, that's better than a credit union. It's better than I can get with bank of America. And they give me some pretty decent rates because um, of, of how long I've been there. But like, how uh, how easy is it to get stuff in and out? Because if that's the case, like I could see myself putting, you know, like, like $20,000, $40,000. Just like in your, whatever you pay your Apple card with, uh, it's automatically connected to the same bank account. Um, putting money in is seconds. Getting money out, like uh, I transferred money out of Apple savings for Yeti's vet bills. And it took about 24 hours for the money to show up in my bank's checking account. So I wouldn't say it's difficult. It's not instant. But as far as bank transfers go, it's not two to three days. It's a day. Okay, cool. As long as we're covering my quick hit topics, I also want to mention that Google's top level domain dot zip is a horrible idea. (sighs) Awful. Like right now, if you go to malicious-content.zip, they have registered, I think there's a blog called Malicious Content about uh, Trojans and viruses and 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 cybersecurity. Um, if you go to malicious-content.zip, Firefox will download a payload. So will Chrome. And then and what and, and what's inside that is a PDF, which is also problematic, right? Because then which honestly I have to say, this is brilliant on the cybersecurity people who put that together. Because not only is the payload a zip file, which is bad enough, but then what's inside the zip file is a PDF file. So these yeah. are two things that have been very, very exploited yeah. by by viruses and macros and all kinds of other things. Like we're we're Mac users, we're typically more immune to these things. Um, not universally, definitely people can create Mac Trojans, but usually not in in PDFs and stuff. But like this is this is how this is how you get ants, as they say. Like if you do you want ants, this is how you get yeah. ants. Yeah, a PDF like, inside a zip file is kind of like the turducken of um, yes. You know. <laughs> yeah, like 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 it was a, it was a doc file, not even docx, like doc. <laughs> like that would be like like adding like uh, uh you know the next level of of of, of turduckenness. Like that would be like adding a, a, another another piece of lobster or something. <laughs> so what do you think Google was thinking when they made a dot zip domain? It's confusing because obviously it's the first thing you think is like this is no good, yeah. right? And yeah, they're, they're super smart. Yeah. So why did they knock that concern down? I feel like feel like somebody would have said, as a top level domain, this is this is ill fated. Like they have AI experts, they have uh, ethics experts, they have massive yeah. security teams. What are you talking about? Like they, <laughs> they they literally have like one of the best bounty teams where they find other people's vulnerabilities <laughs> and report them to them. Like they literally like Google has some of the most talented you know, engineers working for them. We know that, but they also have very, very smart security people because they have to. And it's so dumb. And the thing is, is like they also bought uh, .mov domains, which is also yeah. a problem because QuickTime files. That's like a .exe domain. It really is. I mean, and 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 look, I know that there are purists out there because I've seen these comments on various things like, well, Calm was was a file extension back in the 80s and this and that. And I'm going to be like, okay, fuck off, Neckbeard. <laughs> no one had the web in the 80s, first of all. Did not exist. The people who had access to those things were like – People who worked at universities and institutions or very, very eager hacker kids. And even then, they couldn't afford to buy domains. So it was 
to me, it's just not even a comparable situation. Like the dot zip thing is really bad because there are a lot of people who will have things hard coded in. And um, I saw some um, post who basically showed like because of some of the the various uh, Unicode uh, fuckery things you can still do mm-hmm. with domains that, you know, the uh, ICANN has still refused yeah. to address for years, despite being called on it for like literally years and years and years. You can make two files look identical where one would take you to like a GitHub repo that would have a .zip thing and one would look the same. And if you clicked on like, okay, which one of these is legit? And like, if you clicked on one of them, it would like take you to like, there's nothing here. And if you clicked on another one, it would download a zip file. Yeah. But one of them is not coming from a GitHub domain. It's coming like, it's all of this has been spoofed and, and it's just like, like, you know, Unicode fuckery. This is really, really bad, but but because of the the way that, you know, they, they can, you know, modify this stuff with the .zip stuff, it's just, uh, to your point, they should know better. And and this isn't the first time they've done stupid shit with their um, top level domains. Like, do you remember when they bought they bought dot app and then they bought dot dev? Oh, geez. And dot dev was was um, problematic for a lot of people because that's what you use for um, your local testing domains. Yeah, I, I remember. Exactly, I had to exactly. change so, all of my all of my local host domains. I had to change instead of bt.dev to test my local website i had to change it to dev.bt and use an unoccupied tld for all of my extensions exactly yeah exactly and and so so they've they've done this before and like there's a part of me that i'm like okay maybe if they had bought it preemptively because you know they they take on all these top level domains it's like okay well maybe google did this is for a good reason and they're not going to roll it out to people and and protect the internet but no they're just like no we'll we'll sell them to you why not it's like oh Shut up. It's amazing. Do you know don't don't be evil? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. It seems so quaint in retrospect. It really does. And you know what's funny? Is like oh, there are a lot of people, and I'm most I'm absolutely including myself in this, who really gave Eric Schmidt a lot of shit when he was CEO and chairman. And I don't not saying that that was misguided, because definitely like the guy is, you know, weird and whatever. But if I compare him to like what happened when he left and then especially like Sundar who just seems like the the perfect combo of like incompetent and like aloof. Eric Schmidt at least had some balls. Like Eric Schmidt to his credit pulled out of China. Yeah. Full stop. He said we are making a business decision. We will not operate in China. Period. Full stop. And then it was years after he left when they were like, oh, well, this is a really big market. We really we have to find a way to sort of, you know, operate, but not really operate. They kind of reneged on that. But like I still, in my opinion, that was one of the most standout stand up like business moves I can ever recall any company taking because no other tech company made that decision. And that was Eric Schmidt. So like, I'm, I'm sorry, Eric Schmidt, because he, he was the one who created Don't Be Evil. Yeah. I was like, I, I'm sorry for dogging on you. You, you suck, but you're better than, <laughs> than our current crop of tech CEOs. In retrospect. In retrospect. You got me thinking on the Don't Be Evil front. Like, it's not too easy to create a shared definition of what evil meant at the time. Totally. Um, but certainly you can, you know, sketch one together. And I, I wonder how different our definition of evil used in the sentence, don't be evil yeah. is, has changed between that time and now. Oh, that's a great point. You know what? I bet, I bet in some ways it's gotten like things that we would not have considered evil. We do. And I bet in, in some ways that it, it, it's reversed, right? Cause Google, like a lot of those tech companies, and I'm sorry, we're going on a tangent, but like, I'm not talking like the libertarian, like party, like of Silicon Valley companies that were much more like small L libertarian. Like I'm not talking about like, you know, the, the, the people who, who claim those ideals. I'm not talking about like Connor from succession. I'm talking about people who created the Internet Archive and the, you know, um, Electronic Frontier Foundation and other kind of, I guess in some ways would kind of like be like liberal, like anarchists, right? Like they had like very specific ideas around freedom of speech and around accessibility of things and and around like stopping, you know, government um, inter- intervention and things. And I think in generally in trying to kind of do the right thing as they defined it, right? We feel it this way and we can do it. And that's just not really the ethos yeah. anymore. Like that was it, not. I'm not saying that it was it was absent profit motive because it absolutely wasn't. But it wasn't as tied into kind of the 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 corporate greed cycle that we've had now. And and so it's it. it I think in some ways things that they would have called evil, um, we now would maybe not feel as strongly about. 
Um, but in some things that they, they would be like, oh, this is fine. We'd be like, oh, no, that is straight up evil. Like Google itself. That's, that's an interesting topic. I wish somebody would write that. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Well, also, it was, I remember when I first read that, I mean, in, in the actual days, uh, days of yore, um, I remember thinking, oh, that's cute. It, was, it seemed like kind of a cute statement. You know what I mean? Um, it didn't seem like something that went through like a, a several large committees because they didn't exist <laughs> right. at that time. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say they, they had so few people. It was it was genuinely a startup. Right. And um I feel like yeah. there should be a minister of prophecy at all of these um, tech companies, <laughs> so that when you're creating these these uh, slogans or promises, someone can be like, um, "Just a second, we're going to have to speak to the minister of prophecy." Notably, notably, right. no one since them has had a similar tagline. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the closest was, and it was obviously um, different. It, it didn't have like the moral, well, eh, a little bit, but like Facebook's was like move fast and break things, right? right? And 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 then they had to kind of drop that, but like that they are still dogged by that to <laughs> this sure. day. I think the two of them, I think that that was the lesson. Like I don't even know if you need a minister of prophecies now. I think you just look at history and you go, everyone is going to use this slogan that you think is great and applies to your you know small you know few thousand few hundred person company. It is going to define who you are when you become a trillion dollar company. Uh, and, and people are still going to like hold it against you or, or a 500, you know, billion dollar company. If you're Facebook, mm-hmm. like we're, they're going to, you know, hold it against you in perpetuity right. forever. This will define you forever. Totally. I feel like the heat death of the metaverse is a topic for a whole other show. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That is a whole other show. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if you named your company after the metaverse. <laughs> they meant metadata. Hey, good segue. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. true. Let's let's opt not to talk about Facebook or Elon Musk. Let's talk about Jeff's forays into AI. <laughs> now there are two levels to that. One is sort of working Chat GPT into my normal mundane everyday life, and the other is far more exciting work with the API and deeper, stranger work. Let's see what we have time for. My idea is that we talk about the sort of uh, working something like chat GPT into your everyday life. And we save this big philosophical AI self-portrait conversation for the next episode. Yeah, that works. Yeah. So I, I distinguish now because I do use chat GPT kind of all the time. I, I pay now so that I mm-hmm. can use, you know, so I can add, ask 25 things Same. of GPT four in every three hours. Yeah. Um, goes fast. Same. Uh, but Anyway, um, so there's that. And then there's also sort of forays, thank you, Brett, into <laughs> using the API, which is <laughs> more of the topic for next week, but is has become much more interesting and exciting to me. And it's so easy to do. They have such great cookbooks, just to say OpenAI has great cookbooks for doing all the various things um, with their API. So anyway, I um, I think we talked about this before and what what I was doing at the time was I was experimenting with writing um, scripts using chat GPT scripts, meaning automation, writing a Python script to parse text and make basic yeah. changes. So, and- so not like a movie script which would make you a, a picket line breaker early on. Yeah, that's right. Early on, a friend of mine sent me something because I had said something absurd to him in a text and he using chat GPT, he turned it into a Seinfeld kind of vignette <laughs> where everyone gets a line. Nice. Um, anyway. So yeah, no, like writing a Python script to parse text or just whatever I was writing, uh, working with APIs. I would just say, you know, here's the, you know, I use whatever service I'm using. Like, how would I do this in the da 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 API? And it would tell me. And as long as the API hadn't changed since whatever the date is that is the cutoff for Chat GPT or GPT, um, it would do a good job. And I and it it kind of helped me with computational thinking because I would, you know, ask it a question. It would write an initial script. We would do a lot of stuff to fix it. But then I'd start over, and I'd ask the question informed by what I had learned in the previous chat. So I was like the yeah. learning AI, right? Right. Um, and it would write, you know, it would write uh, scripts. You put them in, you get errors, you put it, you know, give them the error and it's deciphering errors, which is amazing. So anyway, so that's that part. But I've also just been testing out kind of the various other exercises of my, my uh, profession. So I write a lot of records requests. And they're usually state level records requests, which means that, you know, whatever state you're requesting in, so say you're requesting emails from the state probation 
uh, department or something, right? You have to know and cite Nebraska's uh, public records law, which will tell you and which you then assert, you know, here's how long people have to respond to you. You know, they have to respond to you by this amount of time. They can't charge you unless this, unless this, right? And so I've got it writing public records requests for me, which was previously something I did using Text Expander. So I just have all that kind of text framing. Yep. But what I found is that when I ask ChatGPT to write a records request based on where I'm going to send it, it writes a more interesting and more legally thorough um, records request than I would have otherwise written. So that stuff's been interesting. And then um, I've just been using it. So uh, on our kind of board of directors at the organization I'm part of, every time we have a meeting and we have meeting notes, I run it into chat GPT and ask for a summary. I ask for a couple of different kinds of summaries, a bulleted summary, a summary of the most important actions or topics, just to see how it works. And it generally works quite well. And then I've also been feeding it my raw notes from phone calls or other kinds of meetings or interviews. And my raw notes, meaning like my trashy raw notes, like incomplete sentences, spelling errors, no real clear sense of when I've gone from one subject to another. And it does a shockingly good job of inferring what is absent um, and and kind of summarizing based on that. And then the, the other way I'm, I'm using it right now and again, none of these, I'm never leaning on it as the main thing, right? Everything has my kind of review, careful review, test it again, review, whatever. But uh, here's what is a concern that's come up for me. Um, so if I am creating documents that will ultimately be historical documents for my organization, or if I'm doing research on like, I have all this research on an ancestor of mine who fought in World War One. And I have this like bulleted information and I asked chat GPT, like summarize this. And then I said, now give me like the context um, for this person's unit. Now tell me what changed in the Midwest between 1917 and 1918, you know, when he left and came back and, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm adding that into the document. And what I fear is that the fact that this was generated by AI, which I'm noting and the fact that I am well aware that I can't just depend on this might get lost down the road in, in the years that come. Someone looks at this in 50 years and they'll be like, right. oh, here's interesting research on how the Midwest changed in this period. But in fact, it was generated by AI and I didn't fact check it. I just wanted to do it to see what it would do. And like that actually brings up a big question I have for both of you. Like imagine that problem. Imagine it in many domains. Um, one example actually could be if I'm having summaries of meeting notes from chat GPT and it actually isn't quite perfect, but I either don't notice cause I'm moving too fast or, um, or it just gets past me. Right. That becomes the record, right? Like, because the record. So if there's one right. sentence that's off, it could one day be much more meaningful than that sentence is now. Right. It might mean, yep. I might blow back. Cause I'm like, well, it doesn't matter that it got that wrong. The rest of this stuff is great. Right. Totally. But then I also think more in the case of being a researcher, being a reporter or whatever else, like if I imagine, you know, my story uh, folders being in a historical society someday, because I donate them just cause I feel like, why not have, all these Minnesota stories here. How do we, how do we, what do we do short of, I mean, beyond metadata, I guess, to say, hey, yeah, point at and be like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. So it's actually it's this great topic. I actually had a conversation um, yesterday with um, a designer at Microsoft. Um, so Microsoft Build is next week and I'm, I'm co-hosting and I was doing some pre-interviews uh, before the show and this is actually going to be a session um, at, at Microsoft Build um, that was just recently added to the schedule and then Curtis and I are going to be talking um, afterwards or, or before, I'm not really sure on the timing, but he he's a designer who's been working on um, basically thinking about okay, what is the design language and what are the things that we need to build into these large language models and these interfaces, A, to help people use them and then B, exactly what you're talking about to like let people know about sometimes these things hallucinate sometimes the things that these things output are incorrect like what what do we put into place there so that people don't become overly reliant on these results exactly to your point and so i do feel like metadata is definitely part of it right i think that's a big and important part of it and and hopefully metadata can persist 
across file formats and generations and technologies and whatnot, because uh, that that's always a concern, you know, that that stuff can get stripped or, or lost or whatnot, and then you lose all context. Um, but I think there's another part of it too, which is, and I hadn't, and I have to admit, I hadn't, I, I think I'd read the blog post that his team put out um, uh, like a month or two ago about how they were approaching designing um, for, for large language models, but I, I, I hadn't really, um, it hadn't really fortified in my mind the same way, which was, okay, what are the design decisions that we need to do to let people know what's up and what the truth is? And I feel like, you know, even like in the notes, like in addition to having metadata, like it might need to be something where something is just called out, right? Like might have to be that explicit being like, this is from, this was generated from AI and has not been fact-checked. Yeah. Like, but we have, but I think we have to think about it. everybody who's designing these systems. How are you informing people and and ensuring that the correct context is there? Because it's so close, so often enough that it is incredibly easy to just become reliant on the results. And, and that's the same thing that happened with Wikipedia in the early uh, days, yeah. right? Like early Wikipedia. Early Wikipedia was garbage. It's a lot better now than it was, but it was garbage. But we had access now to more information than we'd ever had access to at any yeah. previous time. So it was really easy for people to overly rely on it. And then I think people went and over-indexed the other way, which was like, you can never cite Wikipedia as a source. And I'm like, okay, maybe not, but you could take some of the sources yeah. that they cite. Right. Um, and, and I think that, I think that, so I think that might be part of it too, which is, I think that we have to do a good job of tagging things. I think we have to do a good job of, in the products themselves, making clear what's happening. And then I think there's another UI aspect where I think maybe some of these places, when they're coming up with these claims, they have to add in footnotes as part of the output. Yeah. Kind of you if know? you uh, um, if you paste a highlight from like Apple Books, you get this long right. yeah, footnote. Mm -hmm. Man, that makes me think of a couple things. One is the importance of text files becomes... Uh, relevant all over again, because any kind of, I would imagine people watermarking like a word doc or something like that, yep. all that stuff can be stripped. And of course, anything can be removed from a text doc, but at least if it's all kept in good faith, you can find a way to maybe kind of bracket the, the kind of AI stuff. And like you said, to come up with like a standard footnote, maybe you're, you're, you're including what, you know, what, version of the of the model you're using and how are you setting up that environment what instructions are you kind of coding in that makes me wonder if the best way at the moment to do this if you can do it faithfully is to do this work in a git repo and maybe there's there's a push that's just i added the ai stuff so you have that history so that you can click yeah an audit trail, yeah. And you can go to the then you can go to the link just before it to be sure you're looking at only, you know. I mean, you have to really trust the person who did that, but Yeah. Sure. But the audit trail makes a lot of sense. Like Yeah, I agree. We can't expect all of the uses of generative AI to be called out. Um like the web no. is already flooded with yeah. with Absolutely. generative AI, but for like in a research scenario, having a pull request and a merge history that shows like this is where it happened and you can like get blame whoever was responsible for incorporating AI into. Get, get blame should be a command. Get blame. It is. <laughs> it is? It is. Oh, it I is. didn't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Is that is that a deep cut or it's what? One, it's I, one of the I, best never ones. Heard of no. It. I mean, it's. It's uh, it's more common than Git bisect, which I feel deserves a lot more attention than it gets. Huh. Yes, but bisect is great. But yeah, but 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 Git blame the the humor in it. I think is this stuff that <laughs> is this stuff that comes up in collaboration and uh, rather than if you were doing a solo repo or tell me about Git blame. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, Git blame is all about like figuring out whose commit broke what who did what and <laughs> it's a way to it's a way to figure out like where a bug was introduced and absolutely blame the blame the responsible party yep. wow that's awesome yeah so like we we oh my god <laughs> my cat just walked away with a long chain in her mouth um <laughs> so uh like 
I I moved our publishing workflow at Oracle to be all GitHub based uh, because we could do everything through pull requests. We could comment line by line and we could go back through any article and see who added what, who edited what. And it was a way better process than like passing around uh, Word documents with change tracking. Yes. Um, Like it was all in one place, one canonical document Mm -hmm. with a full change history. And you could see exactly who did what. And and I feel like that's perfect. That's a perfect way to introduce AI into any kind of textual conversation. No, I totally agree. And I would go one step further and I would be curious on your take on this, Brett, because I know you've played around with it a little bit, but I feel like this would also be a really useful place for using things like Jupyter Notebooks. Yes, um, yes. Because, great point. because that would be like a great way, I think, to organize things. And um, you could also have code blocks if, there, if, if those things are there. And then you get the added benefit of having the tracking aspect too. Yeah. But no, I fully agree with you, you Brett. Um, I think I've talked about this on this show before, but I've, I've long had this dream and I still think this is a great idea where I'm like, okay, but what if you had like GitHub for office files? Like, and people are like, oh, that's yeah, track changes. Sure. And I'm like, and I'm like, no, no it's, it's not. not. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, I want to see every line of every single change, every single commit, right. everything that happened in the structure yep. of a document, which you technically could do with, with the way that the, the, the XML in, in those, in those structures mm-hmm. work. And I combined I don't know. with Git, yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Like, I actually think that that would be a freaking killer product. That if if I if I were if I had enough money and enough um, ability to, to focus my attention, I would like want to start something and like hire people to build because I do think that that could be like if you were going to create like the next killer like collaboration platform, like that would actually be what it would be. Yeah. Is, yeah. is, is that it? Cause it's not the sharing aspect. It's not the both people typing at the same time. That's great. But, but the real thing is that granular focus on who did what mm-hmm. and be, cause, cause that's the thing that I think that people don't understand the power about Git is, is just how useful it can be when multiple people are, are working on something that you literally have this fantastic view of, of who did what, and you can, in, in many cases, you know, pick and choose what, what things you want to, to take and what things you don't. Yeah, that's yeah. the key thing. Because like Google Docs does an interesting, I think a pretty good job of this kind of versioning, but it's not, it's not great it's at not, all. And it's really yeah. hard to pick out the kind of, you know, if you really want to, like if you're looking at a Git history, you can just, it's so easy to just be like that. Yes. Yeah, it's all about history. Like yes. Google and Google diffs, Doc right? Changes. Like it's about histories yeah. and seeing the diffs, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah, exactly. Well, that's what's so funny. People people will tell me whenever I, I comment on this on Twitter because I do this every six months or so, and I've been doing this for years. And people are like, oh, well, just do this, just do that. I'm like, that is not what I'm talking about. That is yeah. not version history. If if, if if tell tell me you've never used version control and really seen what it can do without telling me you've never used version control, right? Because, it, <laughs> and, and, and that's not me like even trying to like flex. I'm just saying like, you don't know until you know. Yeah. And I, it, I, that was one of those revelations for me. I was like, I don't know until you know. And to your point, Brett, like you've essentially built a CMS, you know, using, mm-hmm. you know, GitHub as, as your method. Um, I met a guy at Git Merge last year, um, the, the annual kind of like conference for the Git contributors who talked to like, that is actually what they're trying to do. They're trying to build a CMS on top of Git, but you know, kind of abstract the Git part for for normies. Yeah. But but that's what they're doing, which I I was like, he and I had a great conversation. I was like, I fucking love what you're doing. That's my dream. There was a great Mac app called Draft Control huh. um, that has since yes, you told me disappeared. About this. It's gone. Yes. But it used Git bundles um, to to create a change history for any document you were working on, and it would track foreground documents. So whether it was Word or a text editor or, you know, text edit, like whatever you are working on, RTF files, docx files, text files, and it would just create Git bundles every time it noticed a change. And you could see diffs for the entire history of a document. Wow. And it was it was pretty brilliant. And and it just kind of died at some point. What was it called? Uh, draft control. Yeah, I remember this now. I remember you telling me about this, and in this, yeah, that was a really, really cool, like genuinely a really great app. I that sucks. I bet it died because the, the developer just couldn't make enough money off of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm looking it up right now. It looks like it was in the Mac App Store, so that didn't help, and it was only ten bucks. Yeah. 
um, yeah, that's that's not going to unfortunately sustain that sort of development. To this conversation, I just want to add that while I don't use, like I have GitHub Copilot, I have Codium, um, and I have, there's a new extension for integrating both of those into Xcode, which is, which is very good. But like, I don't use it for a lot of code generation, but I have found it amazing for documentation. Yeah. Like I can just select a function. I can say document this function and it will add, you know, code appropriate comments before the function explaining literally everything the function does way more detail than I would ever bother to go into myself and like talk about all the parameters, all the outputs and explain exactly what the function does. And I can do that with a click. And that's that's awesome to me. I love it for that. I did. I, I post dad jokes to um, to Mastodon. I all my social media. Let's let's be honest. I <laughs> yeah, dad dad, jokes everywhere. I was gonna say you do. But I did the I, I posted this dad joke that was Panda walks up to a bar and says, Hey, can I get a rum and dot 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 <laughs> coke? And the bartender says, Of course, but what's with the big pause? And the panda looks ashamed and says, I was born with them, but they really blew up in my teens. And the bartender says, I'm sorry, that was really rude of me to point it out. And the panda says, That's okay, man. They're hard not to notice. They hit it off, and after last call, they had to his place. That was the post. And then someone was like, I couldn't stand that it ended there, and I was wondering about the fate of the two. GPT comes to the rescue, and spoiler alert, I was relieved to hear that they pivoted to online orders and workshops creating bamboo-infused drinks during the pandemic. Um, that's from <laughs> Andre Adrian Skonig. But, like... ChatGPT as a responder, like I can write a a curt, terse email in response to something, and then I can just real quick run it through ChatGPT and say, "Make this friendly, make make this response friendly," and it will nail it almost every time. Yeah, that's a good everyday mundane use. I realize that I got us so off topic of like, how else do you use it? Yeah. No, sure. no, I think that's a great one. What I'm going to say, um, uh, the waiting list is we're letting people off the waiting list all the time, but uh, the waiting list is still really long. But I would be curious when Copilot Chat comes out um, to see what your take on that would be, because that I've been using for a couple months now, and it basically puts in um, a chat window in, in VS Code. Um, this is only in VS Code right now um, because we have the, the NeoVim extension. That's how people have been able to create extensions for things like Xcode and and other stuff. And, and we're, we're obviously hoping to be able to bring some of these other um, experiences to other things, but it's, it's difficult. But uh, the Copilot chat, basically, you can like ask a question. It's got kind of its own sidebar kind of get a list of topics um, where you can explain something, you can say, fix something. Hey, I'm having a problem with this line. Can you fix the bug online, whatever? And you can interact separately from where your code is, but you can then move stuff back and forth. So if I said, you know, write me a, um, you know, write me a code to do this, it'll create it. And then I can put it in my, my document. And then I could say, okay, convert it to this. That's one of my favorite use cases uh, right now is is like having it like convert one block of code that's in one syntax. Yeah. Into yeah. yeah. Well, and ChatGPT can analyze error logs yep. in context and tell you yes. how to fix errors. And that's outstanding. Well, that's the whole thing, right? I think that's that's what what uh, people sometimes miss about when they when they hear about like these the things like ChatGPT and, and Copilot, which uses the same technology and and some of these other services, is that the ones that are really good are the ones that know the context of what you're talking mm-hmm. about, where you can ask those follow-on questions. And that's what makes it different than just autocomplete. Yeah. It is fancy autocomplete, but it's autocomplete that has like a history log. Yeah, and and sure. it understands, and, and even like in the case of like Copilot, like if it sees all the files in your project, it can analyze all of those things. So it's not just looking about like the document you're in right now. And, and that that's, I don't know, that's the stuff that to me just like, makes me super happy. You made me you made me realize as you said that that I now go to chat GPT with errors to interpret them before I go to Stack Overflow. Yeah. Yep. Sorry everybody. Yep. I mean recognizing no. <laughs> that it might be wrong. Well, yeah, and chat GPT4 with web browsing is amazing for replacing Stack Overflow. But before we get to gratitude, I want to tell our listeners about a couple of podcasts 
First, we want to talk about Mac Break Weekly for iMacs, iPhones, iPads, Apple Watches, Apple TV, uh, and the ins and outs of Apple shaking up things in tech. The Mac Break Weekly podcast covers it. Join Leo Laporte with Jason Snell, Andy Anako, and Alex Lindsay on the Mac Break Weekly podcast. They dive into new products, future innovations, and everything Apple related. I think you've been on the show, right, Christina? Oh yeah, I've been on. I think I was actually. I think I was actually on the very first episode. You're like a regular contributor, so yeah. yeah. Is and and, and oh, look, you're literally talking about like four of like the best like Mac people ever. For sure. you know, Andy, Leo, Jason, Alex, like they've been around forever and they know everything. And they all have really good perspectives of different things. Like like yeah. Alex, especially during the pandemic stuff, like his experience with doing video production and, and conferencing stuff, um, especially on your Mac, really good info. And uh, you know, Jason, Leo and and Andy have like they're they're heroes. Alex is the only one I'm not familiar with, but Andy, Jason, and Leo I have followed since the early 2000s. So uh, get it get a new episode of Mac Break Weekly every Tuesday by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we also want to talk about the short game. The short game. The <laughs> short game. If you like video games but can't remember the last time you hit the end credits. Check out the Short Game podcast. Oh, I love this. The Short Game is a weekly podcast about games that takes just a few hours to complete, from the latest narrative indies to brief but brilliant classics. Every episode starts spoiler-free, so you can listen without fear. And with a nine-year back catalog, they probably covered your favorites like Undertale, Hades, Celeste, and Vampire Survivors. Their only rule? The game must be short. The short game is hosted by Reagan Kelly, Shane Kelly, and Laura Nash, and Nate Heininger. Four time-poor 30-somethings who prove you can be a parent, a professional, a full-fledged adult, and still love games. You can find them by searching for The Short Game on any podcast platform or head to shortgame.fm for all the links and buttons. The Short Game Podcast, games that respect your time. That's shortgame.fm. Nice. So I, I'm assuming they're not going to be talking about the Tears of the Kingdom. I, <laughs> but everyone else is, so it's fine. I got to get started. It's <laughs> happening in this house. I got to get started before I... I was going to say, are your boys playing it? Because I, 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 have to, I have to imagine like your, 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 your sons are all about it. Yeah, they're both playing and loving it. And I, I played through... Uh, Breath of the Wild, and so I really want to. Yeah, do so this. fun. Yeah. All right. Grab a cup of kabuka, gratitude. Can I kick it off? Mine will be pretty short. Please do. Sure. Do it. So there's this service called Ground.News. That's the web address. Ground.News that offers current headlines from. It's like all sides if you've ever seen that, but it offers it from all all points on the political spectrum and ranks each story based on how many right-wing or left-wing or centrist uh, organizations reported on that headline and then ranks each one based on its factuality and says, you know, generally factual or questionable and gives you a way to take the current news stories, which are probably anybody is getting in their bubble. So they're getting their bubbles idea of this story and it gives you a chance to kind of break out of your bubble and see what other sides are saying. I have I have gotten my my mother into using this and we have found common ground on articles that normally she would have come to me infuriated about. Uh, but she's able to see, oh, there are multiple sides to this problem. And and you're able to see like maybe this news article that got you incensed, maybe it's questionably accurate and be able to see, okay, sure. Uh, my left-wing news sources are reporting this in a, in, in one way and my right-wing sources are reporting in another. So just for an unbiased take on news, uh, ground news is my pick of the week. Very awesome. nice. Very nice. I like that a lot. And, and I like, they have a browser extension as well. Yeah. 
um, which is which is rad. I, I'm going next because um, uh, Jeff's section is is hella long, but hella awesome. It won't be. I, I have a short version of my section. <laughs> um, well, go, no, go as long as you need to. Um, uh, I was gonna pick Sky, which is like a, a wrapper for for Blue Sky for for Mac OS that I quite like, and I will have that in the show notes. Um, we haven't talked about Blue Sky, but we're gonna talk about that um, at some point. Uh, it's pretty awesome if uh, if you're there. Um, uh, all three of us are there. I think I'm probably the most active, but it's it's a fun place. Um, but so, so sky is, is good. And I also have a GitHub repo in my stars. I have a collection of, of a blue sky goodness, similar to my Mastodon collection, just of, of cool projects that I run across. But the thing that I'm going to talk about, because I just saw this on Brett's list that he didn't talk about is default folder X six, Yeah. because I didn't even know, I knew that, that, um, um, uh, he had been, um, working on it. So I, I'm a huge fan of default folder X. I've been using it for, I don't even know how many years. It's one of my favorite apps. It's one of those apps that I love it so much that I do this weird thing where I usually buy it, but then I use the setup version as my installed version. And I do that because I want him to get it and them, I guess the team to get like the recurring revenue of my usage Mm -hmm. from setup. But I also feel like, I, I need to pay for it, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it, it's one of those things. I, I really do get that much value out of the app. I feel like I don't pay enough for it. And so just looking at like the, the um, like list of like new features that are coming to it, this looks like this is going to be really, really great. Yeah. Um, and, and then for people who aren't familiar, default folder X basically makes it really easy for you to have default folder commands. It's kind of like a window overlay of like the, the, the save as dialogue and, and all Mac apps. Um, you can, um, have, uh, you know, set folders for certain file types or for, for, for certain locations, you can have favorite folders pinned so that you can easily access them. You can also do things like one of my favorite features is to have, um, a, a hotkeys to go directly to a specific folder that I want to mm-hmm. go to anytime. I'm in the finder. I know you could use like a million other apps for that, but I really like default folder X. Um, and it's just, it's really good. And it looks like um, one of the, and, and you're the one who put it on here, Brett. So I'll let you talk about it too. But it looks like one of the big things. A, uh, finally, you can sync your your settings between two Macs. And so I'm not going to have to like copy my plist files anymore, which is what I've been doing over the years. That's really cool. But B, it looks like it's got kind of like a, um, a launch bar uh, slash Alfred slash yeah, like quick a search. Raycast quick search, which any app that wants to adopt that paradigm, I'm, I'm a big fan of. And, and I'm one of those people who like, I don't think I can have too many, like as long as I, you know, know what my, my shortcuts are for yeah. it. Um, I'm a big fan. So yeah, everyone should just adopt command shift P, but yeah, the quick search is cool. And they just added spotlight, like a fallback. If you use the quick search to go through like all your recent files and favorite files and you don't find what you're looking for, it can fall back to a spotlight search. So it becomes kind of a universal quick search for files and folders. I would say the one other thing that I love default folder X for is just its basic UI tweaks that it does, like expanding fields, making, making certain inputs bigger. Uh, allowing uh, file tagging on any save dialogue, like just little little tricks that it pulls on the UI uh, that when it's not present, it's immediately noticeable to yes. me. Yes. I was going to say, it's one of those rare, rare like um, Mac like um, modifications that I actually uh, really prefer the modifications than mm-hmm. what like the default Apple thing is, which is almost never the case to the point yeah. that, yeah, to your point, it is literally one of the first apps I ever install on a new Mac because I can't deal with the, with the normal save dialogue and stuff without it. Like I genuinely can't. It's one of those things I'm like, this is, this is not going to work for me. Like I remember that with, with one like beta, like Mac OS version a few years ago, there was a problem with, with default folder X and, and it like completely like ruined the beta for me because I was just mm. like, I can't, I can't not have, you know, this, this overlay and have like these expanded fields to your point and, and this other stuff. Like, I'm like, this is, this is not good. When you, when you pull down the drop down to like go to parent folders, the, the one UI tweak that I love the most uh, that default folder X adds is every folder in that list has a, a right arrow and you can go into the subfolders of any of those folders and you can just like navigate to any directory off the, off any point in the parent tree of the yep. current folder. And I find that ridiculously useful. 
Awesome. 100%. Yeah, especially because we all have this situation where you need to put it in a specific file and a specific thing because many times like to, to, to your – like as we were talking about before with our version control and other stuff, like we're, we're storing things in different places. We might be having them on various cloud drives or other things. Mm-hmm. And like where macOS stores that is often not what you would think and you have to go into a folder of a folder of a folder, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah, yep. I totally agree with that. All right, Jeff, what you got? Okay, so I, I'm gonna. It's not what I have in the show notes, everybody. Just so you know, <laughs> um, but it's the it's it's what caused it. Um, okay, so I'm mine is actually this Firefox extension called Foxy Tab, and yeah, okay, I I, I I'm just gonna blow your minds with this one. But the reason I came upon it was I was just looking for a way to merge all of my. Um, Firefox Windows uh, when I'm ready to clean up my desktop. You know, I use an extension for that and uh, or package for that. And Sublime Text, a lot of a lot of apps have it built in. Chrome and Safari have it built in. I'm super glad Firefox didn't because once I got to Foxy Tab, I realized it does all these things I didn't even think to dream. Um, and so I'm just going to run through uh, some of the like amazing functionalities. Okay. So I'm literally, I've pulled up the, you know, Foxy Tab, like drop down menu to do work on a tab. And it starts with, it could save the tab as PDF, which is awesome. Um, yeah. There's a screenshot option. That's great. Um, then you can actually like, there's a copy option. You can copy the tab title, the tab IP, the tab URL, um, you know, like all of these different uh, bits of the tab, which is totally awesome. And then there's like a bookmarking thing. Uh, there's a thing where you can, if you've got a million tabs open, you can close just the ones that are already bookmarked. Um, oh, which wow. to me is just genius. <laughs> That's, That's really awesome. Cool, yeah. Because yeah, between duplicate tabs, which you can also deal with, between duplicate tabs and tabs that are bookmarked, like that's probably 50, 60% of what's open half the time. Sure. Um, yeah. And then there's like this whole bit where you can sort your tabs by URL ascending or descending, by title, by last accessed, by domain, um, which is totally awesome it has like it has like a close all to the left or close yes, all to the right exactly right? yep yeah. it does and then this is huge for me pin all pin to the left pin to the right and then unpin all unpin to the left unpin to the right like i get my pins become just this really like really weak way of saving something until later <laughs> um and so being able to do that is huge uh and then of course the reason i came merge all windows it's just like an awesome 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 um extension so i really like again i i knew these were problems that i needed solved but i didn't think to look for the solution no i love it and, and sorry, sorry what's, what's the extension called again foxy tab foxy tab okay that's i was looking tabby for some reason foxy tab <laughs> i wish now i'm like jealous that this doesn't exist for other browsers like this is almost enough of a thing to make me want to use firefox yeah almost. yeah <laughs> Does it not exist for, I suppose it's Fox. It's yeah, very it's got Fox, Fox in it. I would recommend, um, I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but I've talked about it on the podcast before, Workona. Yes. Yeah, I have. Um, I use Workona on Firefox and Chrome, mm-hmm. and it is just spectacular for managing uh, tabs in context. So I like open up my general contacts or I open up my, uh, overtired context and it loads all the tabs that are related to that thing. And then yep. when I'm done with that thing, when our podcast is over, I just close the overtired, the context, all those tabs close. But next time we start podcasting, I just click it again. You do it again. And they all yep. open. Yeah, yeah. I use my, my, um, I've looked at Workana before. Um, I'm not opposed to paying. I just don't know if I would use it enough to pay $7 a month. Oh, I my gladly thing. pay it. I use well, no, it totally. so which constantly. I, which, yeah. No, which I, which I totally understand. I'm just saying I don't know based on like knowing my own like patterns of usage. Like I would have to really get myself in like the zone of being like this is my primary use case for something. And then I think it would totally be worth it. What I do that is similar is I've been using um, Ar- the Arc browser a lot. Yeah, sure, sure. And, and that I have set up in a very similar way where I have like certain, you know, tabs for uh, different personas and different things and different things uh, tagged and, and stuff to go there. But for me, that's still different than like what um, Foxy Tab is doing because there are times when I'm not in those contexts and I just wind up having a shitload of tabs or I start a research thing and then I'm like trying to use one tab and organize them all and like using my, my Apple script things where I get like a markdown um, uh, list of, of every open tab, like 
you know, across browsers. So I have like, um, I have like a, like a semicolon links, I think is for, uh, for Chrome's E links is edge F links is Firefox S links is Safari. Mm. And then, um, and I, a links I think is, is arc. So I've got like all those things, you know, done, but, but then I, the merge window stuff, that is the thing that I, I, I struggle with all the Ugh. time where I'm always trying to look up like, what, what is the shortcut? Like what is the, yeah. the, the extension, like what is the, the key command to merge windows or to transfer things from one to the other? Right. Because sometimes I have like these two giant monitors and I'll have like, I don't know, a hundred tabs open across things. I'm like, totally. okay, but, but I need to put them all here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then being so, able to prune. Cause like my old, yes. my old, like, you know, press to launch was if I needed to close my browser, I just did save all these bookmarks in a folder called inbox. Right. Like, uh, yeah. and that's so imperfect. Um, I, what did I, you ever, did you ever go no, back but to you never folders. go back to them, right? That's the point. And so <laughs> what this allows me to do is prune. Right. And I, that's what I usually need to do. And like Brett to the point of Wakona, 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 I don't know if I'm saying it right. Wakona. But, um, for me, like why this is is better for me than Wakona is, is that it is a big red button and I need big red buttons. And <laughs> right. and like an example of that too is like I I use Moom, you know, the window management thing for all kinds of yep. stuff. But the most important thing is when I get started for the day, I lay my windows out how I need them for whatever I'm doing in the beginning of the day. I take a quick snapshot that is assigned to a keyboard shortcut that I always use the same one so that throughout the day when things get messy and I need to just reset to the, to this layout, I don't have a layout that I use every time. I just have this like snapshot for what, how I wanted it to be in the morning. Um, it's another big red button, right? Like I, I would love, I've used Workana. I would love to be a good user of Workana, but I'm, I find that my, disposition is 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 really like geared towards red buttons that's like slam it with my hand you know (laughs) anyway good stuff all right should we call it let's call it let's call it i uh i have to pee so bad right now oh yeah well let's definitely call it yeah all right all right um you guys get some sleep get some sleep get some sleep don't let the bed bugs bite this is tim is going down now